Psalm 110 is perhaps the most important psalm of all 150 psalms. Jesus asked the Pharisees what did they think about the Messiah. He asked whose son is he in Matthew 22:42. They replied that he was the son of David. However, Jesus challenged their answer by reminding them that David, under divine inspiration, called the Messiah Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1. Now, how could he do this if he was only David's son? No father would so address his offspring. And so Jesus leaves them with a question. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, the Messiah must be more than the son of David. He must also be the son of God. Later on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the same text to prove that Jesus had been exalted to the position of authority, that is, the right hand of God, in Acts 2, 33-35. Paul, in the book of Hebrews, used this text to prove that Jesus is greater than any angel, because he alone reigns in heaven, Hebrews 1, 13. Hebrews also makes reference to the same psalm, Psalm 110, to Melchizedek, and applies uh, the truths of Psalm 110 to Christ in Hebrews 5, 6. See, what God promised in the Old Testament concerning his son has been fulfilled in the New Testament. It's that simple. And so Psalm 110 is all about the Messiah. And it, and it reveals to us the conquest of the priest king. The conquest of the priest king. Now, the superscription attributes this psalm to David, and if there was any doubt that these superscriptions are indeed divinely inspired, Jesus himself quoted the superscription and attributed this psalm to David in Matthew twenty-two forty-three. So as we consider the conquest of the priest king from Psalm 110, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and see the coming of the Messiah. Then we're going to look at verse 4, the character of the Messiah, and finally the conquest of the Messiah in verses 5 through 7. Let's begin with verses 1 to 3. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Roll in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now verse 1 opens with a majestic announcement that Yahweh has spoken to Adonai. Here is the divine address to the Son of God, and he's invited to sit at the right hand of Yahweh till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this is a prophetic invitation for Christ to reign as king, and this is fulfilled when Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death, and then exalted into heaven. Once he entered back into heaven, he assumed the position of authority at God's right hand. And Jesus identifies himself in Matthew 26, 64, looking towards the future as returning from the heaven where he's been sitting at the right hand of God. Paul told the Ephesians that Christ is currently seated at God's right hand in heavenly places, and that all things have been put under his feet, Ephesians 1, 20 and 22. Christ's exaltation and reign are in effect until all of his enemies have been conquered. See, his victory is symbolized as they in, in the phrase, they become the footstool of his throne. Literally, all of his enemies are going to be under his feet. They're going to submit to him. They're going to be humiliated. 
And so his heavenly reign is going on right now. And as the kingdom of God continues to extend throughout all the earth, as he overcomes Satan's kingdom of evil, until all things are, are made subject to him, his reign is going to continue. And then we'll see, eventually, not in Psalm 110, but in other texts, eventually his reign will become an eternal reign as it merges with uh, the eternal kingdom of God, the Father. And so enthroned in glory, Yahweh sends, quote, the rod of your strength out of Zion. Now, this is the rod or scepter of the Son's power as a military commander. In Psalm 2.9, it says, You, the Messiah, will break the nations with a rod of iron. The fact that his power comes from Mount Zion or Jerusalem is seen in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead there. His gospel went forth to all the nations from Jerusalem. And furthermore, when he returns in glory, he's going to return to Jerusalem and he's going to reign from Jerusalem and he's going to subject all things to himself from Jerusalem. And he will have a rod or scepter as the symbol of his strength, of his power. Then the command is given, rule in the midst of your enemies. Here's the marching order. Jesus is to rule over all things because all authority has been given to him. Matthew 28, 18. Now, who are his enemies? Not just the pagan nations, not just the demonic hordes, not just Satan himself, but any and everything that opposes him. That is his enemies. And all of his enemies are going to be subdued. We learn from verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 110 that Jesus reigns as Lord and that Jesus rules as King. This is the word of God given long ago before he even came. It was fulfilled in his ministry when he inaugurated the kingdom of God and is at, at, the, at his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And so when we evangelize in his name, when we pray in his name, we are, in a sense, extending his kingdom, extending his reign. Not in just the realm of heaven, but he right here on the battleground, planet earth, in the midst of his enemies. And that warfare theme continues in verse 3. As the Messiah extends God's reign throughout all the earth, his people will be volunteers. Literally, we're going to be willing offerings. That is, as his people, we will gladly submit to his reign. And this is going to take place in the day of your power. That refers to that time period in which the Messiah is sitting at the right hand of the Father. In other words, that day of power covers the present age of grace between his first and second coming. When he ascended at the end of his first coming, he returned to the heaven, he sat at his father's right hand, and there he is sitting currently. That was the beginning of the day of his power. And it's going to extend until he returns again. So in this period of time in which we live, this age of grace, if you will, between the comings of Christ, we are, as his people, to be willing offerings, literally voluntarily submitting ourselves to his reign. And we're to serve him in holy array. In other words, clothed in holiness. We are a separated people. We're holy unto the Lord. Remember, Peter exhorted us to be as holy as he is holy in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Holiness is not some grim legalism. Holiness is the restoration of God's creation before the fall. It's the conforming of our character to his character. It's being remade 
out of our image into the image of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And then the next line of verse 3 is a little difficult. It says, from the womb of the dawn you have the dew of your youth, which basically means that the reigning king, Messiah the king, is fresh like the morning, having the dew of his youth, that is, having the vitality of his youth. He's the warrior king. He's commanding his holy people with fresh, useful strength as he retakes the earth from Satan's grip. So the coming of Messiah. Now, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We now have the character of the Messiah. So the coming of the Messiah, he came as what? King. He establishes kingship. But he's also a priest. God speaks again to his son, the reigning messianic king, in verse 4. He gives an oath that is fixed. It's permanent. He has sworn it. He will not change his mind. And here's what he says. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, from Genesis 14, 18, and following verses, we know that Melchizedek was a priest king of the old Jebusite city of Jerusalem. His name meant king of righteousness. And as a priest, after the battle, Abraham came and paid tithes of, of his spoils to Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 takes up the priesthood of Melchizedek and now applies it to the Messiah. In the book of Hebrews, Paul uses this extensively to contrast Christ's priesthood, which is an eternal order, separated from that of the Levitical priesthood, which came from Aaron. You can cross-reference this back to Hebrews 5, 6 through 11, and 7, 1 through 28. The point of the text here is that the king, the Messiah king, is also Messiah prince. And his priesthood is forever. He not only reigns forever, but he represents us to God forever, making eternal intercession for us. And so Hebrews unites Christ being seated at the right hand of God with his priestly role. In Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, Paul tells us that the main point of what he's been communicating in, this, in that epistle was that we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The high priest is king. He's a minister in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. We cannot take verse 4 and understand it apart from its messianic fulfillment in the New Testament. So, 1 through 3, the coming of the Messiah, he is king. Verse 4, he's now also a priest, particularly our high priest. And then verses 5 through 7, we now have the conquest of the Messiah, the conquest of this uh, priest king. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The psalm concludes with a prophetic vision of the end, the day of his wrath. That's the day of God, the day of his wrath. This refers to the final battle which the Messiah will lead against the kings of this planet, who according to the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, are under the rule of Satan. And at that point, his earthly representative, the Antichrist. We also cross-reference that to Revelation 13. And so when the warrior king, when the priest king comes from heaven, he's going to come with the very power of God. Why? Because he's at, his, at your right hand. John says in Revelation 19, verse 11 to 15, that he saw heaven opened. 
He's, and, and he saw a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's his word. That with it he should strike the nations. He's going to strike the nations with the word of his mouth. He won't have to raise a hand. He will speak. And it will happen. Just as he spoke creation into existence, he will speak the destruction over his enemies. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron, John says in Revelation 19. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness, wrath of Almighty God. He's going to bring his judgment. He's going to execute or literally shatter the kings. He's going to destroy them. John also goes on in Revelation 19.19 to tell us that he saw the beast, that is the Antichrist. He saw the kings of the earth. He saw their armies all gathered together to make war against Christ who sat on the horse and against his enemy. You know, Christ comes and destroys their power. He judges all nations in verse 6. And in his wrath, corpses will fill the earth. He's going to put the heads of the states, heads of the nations will be put on the block and they'll be destroyed. And as John tells us, after the beast and the false prophet are thrown in the lake of fire, the rest will be killed with the sword, which proceeds from his mouth, who sat on the horse. In other words, again, anybody who, who after he cast the false prophet and the Antichrist into the lake of fire, after he binds Satan for a thousand years, anybody still standing on planet earth who does not willingly bow the knee, he is going to speak a word and they are going to drop dead. And they're going to be cast into hell where they'll be kept for a thousand years until they're resurrected for their great white throne judgment when they'll then be cast into the lake of fire. There's a very, very dark statement in Revelation 19.21. After they drop dead, it says, all the birds were filled with their flesh. There is going to be a feeding frenzy from the birds. I mean, you picture the scene from uh, Hitchcock's uh, movie, Birds. You know, can you imagine that on a global scale? As God directs the birds to go forth and to clean up the carcasses of those who have fallen against him. So here's the son, the reigning king, the eternal priest, celebrating his victory in verse 7. In a very poetic picture, he's going to drink of the brook by the wayside. What a peaceful scene. The battle's won. It's a time of rest. It's a time of refreshment. As David said in Psalm 23, he leads me beside the still waters, besides the brook by the wayside. He restores my soul. And in victory, he lifts up his head. He's triumphant. David prays in Psalm 3.3, You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. See, indeed, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will indeed, as Revelation eleven fifteen says, reign forever and ever. And so here in the book of Psalms, we have Psalm 110, and it stands the prophetic word, the promise of the establishment of Messiah's rule over the nations, over his final triumph of his kingdom. And it is the hope of Psalm 110 that has kept Israel facing the future with faith. It is this hope of Psalm 110 that began its fulfillment on that starlit night in Bethlehem. And it is the hope of Psalm 110 
that can take us, believer, through our trials and our sufferings in this present life because we can cry out, we can look to heaven, we can pray to, we can cry out to, call upon our reigning priestly king who will return in glory. All other hope pales before him. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we thank and praise you that your son is king and priest. That, Father, he is our Lord and he's our high priest. He's making intercession for us. He rules us, he guides us, he leads us. But he also prays for us, he comforts us. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for Psalm 110. Because, Lord, while part of it has been fulfilled, there's still some yet to be fulfilled. And that still gives us hope. Perhaps our hope is greater than any hope that has ever been held before by your people because at one point they could only look forward, but our hope is more secure because we can look back and see, hey, here is the fulfillment of the first part. So we're guaranteed there will be fulfillment of this latter part. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for anyone when, uh, who's going through a time of struggle, a time of difficulty, a time of discouragement, that, Lord, you'd bring them to Psalm 110 that you'd introduce them to their priest, to their king, and that, Lord, you might fill them with hope to know that you have it, that it's in your hands, and that you know the end from the beginning. You have written the end of the story, and it involves your people being secure under the reign and direction of our king priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.